Please remain standing for our scripture lesson, which this week, today, is in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. There is a promise I had made that we would do something with the balance of the book of Daniel. About a year and a half ago, we had worked our way through chapter 6. So my plan is to preach this wonderful text today. And then on Easter Sunday, preach from Daniel 12, 1-3, a very famous resurrection text. And that will culminate our study, bookending Daniel, and then Lord willing... Starting after that, we would look at a, a series that take us a year and a half or so in through the end of next year, uh, 2024, and that would be in Second Corinthians, Lord willing. So that's the plan. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for all the books of the Bible. We just finished First John. We, not long ago, went through First Corinthians. Too much before that, book of Revelation, and half of the book of Daniel. We're grateful that all the Bible speaks of Jesus and directs us all to him, to his feet. Every single jot and tittle, every word, every phrase, all of it is wrapped up in the glorious Son of God. Now, fill us with your Holy Spirit and love for Christ and for each other and for your word your word written, your word preached, and most importantly, your word incarnate, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, the context for today's sermon out of Daniel chapter 7 is actually earlier than the end of chapter 6, which I don't expect that you would remember that. It was a while ago, a year and a half or so, when we wrapped up chapter 6. The events that are related to us here actually occurred between chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Daniel. So sometimes in the Bible we're not given strictly chronological details of historical events. And that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is hearkening back to the time of Belshazzar, one of the, quote, sons of Nebuchadnezzar, And the approximate year in view here is 533 B.C. If Daniel was taken into Babylon as a captive out of Judea in about 605 B.C., you can discern that he is an elderly man, an elderly gentleman, doing the work of the ministry here, still receiving visions from God. And so that sets a little bit the context for today's sermon text, which is always helpful. Now, what I especially love about today's pericope of Holy Scripture is the clear teaching about the Holy Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are highlighted here. The Son of God himself, the Son of Man, actually mentioned here, and the glorious rule and reign, the domain and the extent of the 
triumph and kingdom, the church of Jesus Christ, which is the whole encapsulation of both of these verses, 13 and 14. The created universe brought under his rule. All the eons of the time of creation now gathering themselves together to worship Jesus. Keep in mind that Daniel's vision here in chapter 7 is a pre-incarnate Christophany. Pre-incarnate means before Jesus Christ was made a human being in the womb of Mary in about the year zero or close around there, however they want to date it. And Christophany means it's an appearance of Christ. So sometimes we talk about a theophany, which is an appearance of God. Here we have an appearance of Christ, a pre-incarnate Christophany. Now, it would still be five centuries before the Lord Jesus Christ would be incarnated and born of the Virgin Mary. And therefore, Daniel had to wait, and so did all the Old Testament saints, but we don't. We're looking back a few thousand years on this glorious and most important event in all of human and divine history. And therefore, with that important detail and background in mind, let us make it our gospel goal this Resurrection Day to enjoy our Christ today as we appreciate his eternal dominion. With this end in view, we're going to study Daniel 7, 13, and 14. I know we have some visitors. Feel free to use the outline if you would like to, and this is where we'd start. Title of the sermon, Jesus Christ's Eternal Dominion. First, the doctrine, Christ's eternal dominion has always been God's plan. Now, the reason I mention this is not only because the text teaches us that, but also because it's important to remember that nothing that happens in the world is a surprise to God. And usually we think of bad things that happen in the world, and we say, oh yeah, it wasn't a surprise to God. But even good things, wonderful, glorious things that happen in the world are not a surprise to God. He knows all things, the end from the beginning. We all desperately need to see this King Jesus in the heart of hearts as our faith is lifted up to thee as we worship him today as the church, beholding him as often and as fully as we possibly can by the eyes of faith. Faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10:17. So we need that, dears, and therefore let us greatly appreciate as God's redeemed church that Christ's eternal dominion has always been God's plan. First, Daniel's vision further elucidates earlier scriptures. Now, Daniel 7, 13, and 14 didn't fall out of the sky or out of the blue. It didn't just come out of nowhere. It's actually tied to all the earlier scriptures, too. In fact, we might even run it all the way back to eternity past and the covenant of redemption where the Father, Son, and Spirit determine There will be an elect church. There will be a Savior. It will be the second person of the Holy Trinity. Daniel was aware of other scripture texts. Even today we used Isaiah 9-7 as our call to worship. Daniel would have known Isaiah 9-7. He would have valued that. He would have known that Daniel's friend in the faith, if you will, Isaiah, was saying essentially the same thing that God is saying here in Daniel 7 through this prophet a couple hundred years later. Also, the two references from Genesis listed on your outline there, 
are also given to us much earlier in church history as they came from the pen of Moses, and Daniel certainly would have been familiar with them as well. Our faith has a great, long, and historic tradition, if I may say that, that actually extends itself into the timeless state before the creation of anything, and all of it, in one form or another, for our sake, focuses on the Son of God, the Word of God, the person of the word through whom the universe would be crafted and unto whom all things in creation would be brought into submission. They were all created through him and now they are all coming under his governance and rule. Piecemeal, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, even among us as we worship him here today. When we understand the Bible, God's written word principally to his church, aright, we, we comprehend that it always leads us to our glorious king, the sovereign of all, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Daniel's vision further elucidates earlier scriptures, and Jesus' incarnation fulfilled them. It is true that Daniel was having with all the other Old Testament saints to look forward to Christ's advent, Conversely, as I mentioned earlier, we are looking back on it. I will reference for you an interesting text, Hebrews 11, 39, and 40. This story found in Daniel chapter 7 is one of cosmic struggle in the context of the chapter, international dynasties, and finally the supreme and eternal reign of Christ and you, his saints of his church kingdom. But all of this had to start at the beginning, at least the beginning of the now perpetual state of the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, taking on human form and flesh, and now forever being the God-man. He didn't used to be. There was a time just 2,000 years ago when the Christ became Jesus Christ, the God-man. And now the fullness of the revelation of God has been given. And in the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the session, the glorious reign of Christ, we have all that God has to tell us. It is a beautiful story indeed. Whoever said we can't celebrate Christmas in March? You know, when you start doing a sermon like this, I realize that, okay, we're using Isaiah 9-7. I'm going to quote from Luke 2 a little bit later. It's hard to talk about the inauguration of Jesus Christ's eternal rule as the God-man in heaven upon his ascension, which we'll talk about, without reference to the Advent season. When we think of actual true history of anyone or anything, including God, especially from a cosmic point of view, we don't have to look back all that far, truthfully, relatively speaking. And so long as we perceive Christ at the core, the heart, and the center of it, we are seeing, viewing, and interpreting history rightly and according to the word of God and the truth of what is actually happening and has happened. Let's look at these amazing two verses, 13 and 14, Daniel 7, and consider together marveling at the extent of Jesus Christ's eternal dominion. Now, by extent, we hope to cover everything from the never-ending longevity of Christ's kingdom to the vast expanse of our Messiah's rule and domain. 
On top of that, we desire to know something of the nature of God's intentions in all of this glory. And this is particularly important for us because it affects us as we live in this difficult world. And therefore, with grace, strength, and faith, in the God-man himself, King, let us excitedly investigate the extent of Jesus Christ's eternal dominion. First, it originated in the triune Godhead, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, originated is in quotes because, strictly speaking, and theologically correctly speaking, nothing really originates in the mind of God. Everything to God is an eternal instant. He exists outside the space-time continuum. He is not subject to those things and feelings and forces and dynamics that we are of necessity because we are created contingent beings. Not so with God. Even when we talk about the covenant of redemption, we have to speak of that as if it actually happened in sort of a time back then. And that's really not accurate. But because we want to speak truth about God, we have to use anthropomorphic or the language of human beings so that we can understand it. And God puts the cookies on the lower shelf for us so that we can enjoy them and and relish them. So we see that kind of terminology in this verse. You know, do you know what Jesus' favorite self-designation by far was in the gospel accounts? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Don't say anything. But if you said to your mind, Son of Man, you were right. By far. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And notice here, Verse 13, the Son of Man. It's also found in Ezekiel, the prophecy there. The Son of Man. Very interesting. That terminology. This glorious picture we have here in this one verse 13 is that of the Son of God presenting himself to God the Father, the quote, ancient of days, upon, now get this, this is absolutely key to understanding this, upon the future occasion of the Lord Jesus Christ ascending into heaven following his death and resurrection. This is really a picture of the ascension and the glorious crowning of Christ in his session as the glorified king of the church and the universe. That's what's happening here. Now, of course, here in Daniel, 533 years or so prior to Jesus' birth, this was all prophetic and predictive. But it was certainly of great encouragement to Daniel and to all the other Old Testament saints as they could look forward to this most important fulfillment. Now the language here in verse 13 of clouds of heaven speaks of the Holy Scripture's way of talking about divine majesty and glory. So the clouds, the glory of God. And then we got to remember that Acts 1.9 relates Jesus Christ ascending into heaven after he had walked on the earth and revealed himself as the resurrected living king in a cloud. So Jesus Christ himself ascends in a cloud. This is a glorified Christ and a glorified picture. All of this had to wondrously hearten the prophet Daniel, because earlier in this chapter 7, and sometime today you might want to go back and read it, 
the prophet had in his vision beheld four beasts representing, as you might expect, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the fourth of these beasts, Rome, the kingdom or empire that was in effect and in existence at the time of the Messiah's birth and reign and rule and, and resurrection, crucifixion, and ascension, was extremely fierce. And it was just chewing up and chopping up everything around. And Daniel was explaining this, and then God gives this glorious picture of Jesus Christ who would conquer not only that kingdom, but everything else, and subject all of it under his glorified feet, which he is doing even now, and in a sense has already done. So what is it, dears, that troubles you and me today? as we live in the fullness of the New Covenant Church age, as we live on the other side of this ascension, as the glorified God-man ascended to heaven and is now interceding for you at the Father's right hand, what is it that troubles us? We know that our resurrected and ascended King has been crowned, and because of that, whatever it is that troubles us, is under his feet too. And no enemy can prevail against him or us, including Satan, the world, or the flesh. The extent of Jesus Christ's eternal dominion, it originated in the triune Godhead, and it encompasses all human beings and everything else. I'll give you a minute to write that encompasses. Verse 14a And to him, that is Christ, in this case Jesus Christ, predictive, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. All. This is a very important part of the gospel story that is tragically, perversely, and wrongly not emphasized enough, or sometimes just left out, or in the case of great and gross ignorance, not even believed in. But serious Christians, especially among the redeemed, reformed, must never do that. We must see Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand. The ascension of our glorified Savior has accomplished the subjection Not of some peoples, not of a few peoples, not of just the elect or just the reprobate, but all peoples, nations, and languages. All. You might say, yeah, but a lot of people don't know of him. That's right. Doesn't mean they're not subjected to him too. All. He has dominion and glory and a kingdom over all peoples, nations, and languages. And they do serve him. Now most people don't even realize they serve this great king, but they do. Everyone and everything serves King Jesus. All the time, every second of every day, every speck of reality, everything serves him. Nothing is exempt or left out. including angels, animals, inanimate things, every part of creation. 
They are all under King Jesus, and in him, believe it or not, I'm going to say, in him, in Christ, under us too. We are vice regents, ambassadors for Christ here on the earth. The elect, redeemed members of the body or church of Christ. Now, we are in this regal position not because we were good or attractive or worthy, because none of that's true. None of it. God chose us for this. We are in this because we are in the human nature of the God-man, second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, and that is the reality of it, and that means this is true for us. Verse 14a doesn't leave anyone or anything out. Every human being, angel, animal, plant, thing, willingly or unwillingly, quote, serves him, God's triumphant and resplendent son. All of this glory, dominion, and kingdom was prophesied in the Old Testament, as here, and our Lord Jesus Christ spoke of it happening to and with him the day before his crucifixion, three days before his resurrection, and a few weeks before his ascension into glory, which we're reading about here. You can read about that ascension in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. Do you understand, dears, that you and me and everyone else is serving this great king right now and forever? No exceptions. Sometimes I think we think that God is like us. So, you know, somebody doesn't like us, they're not under us. Nope. Didn't like that. God is sovereign. He's over everyone. Whether they understand him, have the grace of the gospel or not, he's over them all. The glory is to be in Jesus Christ and to have this positively and not negatively. And that's why we want the elect to hear the gospel all around the world and the church to be established everywhere. Pray toward that end, for that is a glorified one. We get to honor him positively as the beloved spiritual bride of Christ. The extent of Jesus Christ's eternal dominion. It originated in the triune Godhead and encompasses all human beings and everything else. And finally, it endures forever and ever. Verse 14b. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Well, there are two aspects here, very important. Highlighted in this last half verse. And they are, the kingdom of Jesus' absolute resiliency and its impervious unconquerability. In simpler terms, it lasts forever and no one can defeat it. Lasts forever and no one can defeat it. It will go into all eternity. You do understand that since God chose to create something, time began. And strictly speaking, time never ends. Sometimes we speak poetically, even in some of our songs, about when time shall be no more or something. That's okay, but strictly speaking, that's not accurate. You know, we'll continue as created beings throughout all eternity. Everyone will. There'll be two destinations, heaven and hell.
That's the truth. Is it not wonderful, though, dears, think about this. Is it not amazing to be part of something now that will persist in glory for all time? In Jesus Christ, and as his redeemed church, you currently possess that incredible blessing. You don't have to wait for it. Jesus Christ himself is the heart of all things. Everything that God has is not something else, it's him. And we have him, right? God has nothing more to give. We possess him now. Now because we human beings are created in the image of God, we intuitively know in our heart of hearts that we will exist forever. Even the most moronic, stubborn, rebellious atheist knows in his or her heart of hearts that he or she will exist forever. But existing in an experiential sense is not all a good thing. God did not recreate you who are in Christ Jesus as his church to exist. Anyone can do that. God recreated you in Christ as new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17, to thrive, to conquer, to laugh, to rejoice, to skip like rams or lambs. Psalm 114.6. And only those who inherit Christ's everlasting church kingdom on earth can or will ever do this. We've looked at the doctrine. We've done some exegesis of two amazing verses. Let's do a little more application this morning and comprehend why the doctrine of Jesus Christ's eternal dominion blesses the church militant. Remember, there's only one church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church the elect of God. But there is the church triumphant in heaven, the church militant on earth. The church triumphant in heaven certainly benefits from this doctrine of Christ's eternal dominion, no question. But I think the saints on earth struggling here especially treasure this teaching. Why would that be? Because it's rough here. It's tough here. This is where the trials are. This is where the tests of our faith are. This is where it will be determined whether we are true or false, regenerate or hypocrites, whether we will persevere or fall off like most people do, whether we will prove by God's grace to be truth-tellers or liars like most people are. happens here. It's tough, though. We need the strength, endurance, and encouragement that God gives us through the merits of the risen and ascended Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And this helps explain why the doctrine of Jesus Christ's eternal dominion blesses the church militant. First, because through it, our Father gives us a thoroughly hopeful prospect. Don't you love hope? You know, there is more to look forward to. I I never want to diminish that fact. I mean, God is so great. He's given us everything we need or want in Christ. But even in eternity, there will be unremitted absolute glory. Hopeful prospect. And again, the Advent phrases, Christmas phrases come to mind here. 
And it's on your outline there. Luke 2, 29 through 32 are quoting the old gentleman Simeon, who is introduced to us in Luke 2, where he made this amazing prayer to God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So that old man had lived a long time waiting, 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 wanting to see the Messiah. Would I see him before I die? Jesus is brought into the temple for the circumcision, and he beholds and holds and sees the Lamb of God. And he saw him with his eyes. We see him in a greater sense by our faith today. But like Simeon of old, we see him by a living faith, God's salvation, the very person of our Lord Jesus. And solely because of this, we can and do face all the trials and hardships and foes and enemies that come upon us. What confronts you today and this week? What troubles you? Think about that one for a minute. Okay, you got that. Is that thing stronger than the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ? Nope. Is it able to overcome the conquering King of glory, Christ our Lord? No, it cannot. What does this mean for us? That we possess now all hope because all life is in Christ Jesus. All life. And the only one who ultimately matters, ultimately matters, is Christ. We talk about people and things that matter. Small potatoes. The only one that really matters is Jesus Christ. And in him, his church matters. I'll tell you what matters in the world. You want to know what matters? Jesus Christ and his saints of his church, that matters a lot. You don't want to be counted in any other company. The bride of Christ, the elect redeemed. Why the doctrine of Jesus Christ's eternal dominion blesses the church militant? Because through it our Father gives us a thoroughly hopeful prospect which is entirely centered on his beloved Son. Because Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the epicenter of all created things, and I thought about this in last week's sermon spontaneously, and I liked it so much I'm going to use it again. Everything was created through the portal of Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And now everything like a grand and glorious good, good black hole. Black holes aren't bad, right? They can be good. We're talking about a spiritual black hole that pulls everything into it. That's what's happening here with Jesus, inextricably drawn to him, placed under his feet. And we who gather to worship him on his days, willingly, joyfully, happily, we are already submitted by God's grace to and under him in a positive way. This day, this very Lord's day, this week, rejoice in your Lord and King, risen to the right hand. Live for him, love him, enjoy him, thrive in him. For God loves you who are in Christ Jesus, his bride, his church. You are loved more than you could know. 
Was not Jesus Christ's precious, priceless, wonderful blood shed for you and for every single one of your sins? Was it? Yes, it was. Did not Jesus Christ come out of the grave on that first Easter Sunday to secure forever your absolute right, just standing before a holy God, crowning you and clothing you with himself, imputing his righteousness upon you now? Yes, indeed. Are your sins gone? Yes. Are your fears of condemnation and damnation removed? Yes, if you are in Christ Jesus and faithful joined to his church. You can know it. I'm sure there are people that are not in that second category that are in Christ Jesus, but until they are joined that way, they can't know that objectively. But we can be. Put all your faith in this great reigning king. Beloved, Jesus Christ's eternal dominion is a fabulous fact of life and history. Because we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, we may thoroughly relish Jesus Christ's eternal dominion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that. We do thoroughly relish this glorious king. We enjoy the kingdom, of course, but it's because the king is with us. He's what makes the kingdom visible. He's why the kingdom exists. He's why the kingdom is here. Because Jesus Christ is the king. We thank you and praise you and bless you for Christ alone, whose name we pray. Amen.